Welcome to the Liberty Podcast. We're so excited that you're interested in the teaching ministry of Liberty Bible Church. We're a multi-site church that exists to share the love of Christ across Northwest Indiana. If you're looking for a church home, please check us out at our website, findliberty.net. Thanks again for joining us as together we're transformed by the teaching from the Word of God. Uh, Well, good morning and welcome to Liberty Bible Church. My name is Tim. I serve as one of the pastors here. We're really glad to have you with us. Uh, We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 9 today if you want to turn in your Bible there. I'm going to pray for us and then uh, jump into our text for this morning. Let us pray. Father, would your word be a lamp into our feet and a light into our soul, that we would inhabit and live our lives in ways that are faithful to how you have shown us how to live in your word. And so we open your word to be, to be instructed and to be pointed to the goodness and person and finished work of Jesus on our behalf. So point us through your spirit, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you could have everything that you wanted, would that be good? In 1979, uh, there was a film in Russia called Stalker, and it was a dystopian film, so the world had sort of been destroyed through war, and, and some of that was, was unclear in the film, but it's dystopian, end-of-world type stuff. And the whole plot of the film is, is three guys who are all moving towards the room, and in the room, you, you could have and would get whatever you want, whatever you want. And so as they get nearer to the room, the the guy who's leading the other two guys there, as they get near the room, he begins to say to them, this is the most important moment of your life. Your innermost wish will be made true here. This is the place where you can have what you want. And in a dystopian story when the world is destroyed, what a compelling offer. Yet the whole point of the movie is, should you actually step in the room? Probably not. If you could have whatever you want, would it be good for you? That's a question that's been debated throughout human history, and I think Christians have had some of the best answers to that question. And one of my favorites is the African theologian Augustine, who wrote, My weight is my love. Wherever I am carried, my love is carrying me. For him, that was not necessarily a good thing. His point was, whatever it is you love, it's pulling your soul in a particular direction and future. So he would always ask, what do you love? What do you want? So we're almost through, but we got a few weeks to go, and in a series on discipleship, the easy yoke. And I've tried to say that the point of this series is discipleship to Jesus means over time you become someone who naturally, easily, and routinely would do whatever Jesus would do if he were you. So the question you have to ask is, well, how do you do that? And this morning I want to say you have to, you have to actually train your hearts to love God. Train your heart to love God. So I'll say a few things, but that's where I want to start is, is point one, we are what we love. We are what we love. So any Christian should ask, well, do I love God most? 
And there's a quote we, uh, or I read the beginning of this series I want to bring back because I think it's a good way to answer that question. It's from Dallas Willard, and he, he writes this. The first and most basic thing we can and must do is to keep God before our minds. That is the fundamental secret of caring for our souls. Our part in the practicing of the presence of God is to direct and redirect our minds constantly to him. In the early time of our practicing, we may well be challenged by our burdensome habits of dwelling on things less than God. But these are habits, not the law of gravity, and can be broken. A new grace-filled habit will replace the former ones as we take intentional steps toward keeping God before us. Soon our minds will return to God as the needle of a compass constantly returns to the north. If God is the great longing of our souls, he will become the pole star of our inward being. Some of what Willard is saying is, the ease with which your mind always comes back to the presence of God is a sign whether or not God is the great longing of your soul. So, where does your mind get drawn to most naturally and easily? I think of my own life. For whatever reason, we're in a current stage when all six of my family get into our van, which is four kids and two adults. I get angry. Because it is so loud in that van. And there will be times when like, everyone is talking at the same time. And it's like, who are we talking to? We're all talking and no one's listening. This is not fun for anyone. And I, I start to think, okay, what, is, what does my anger say about what I want? What I love? Or when someone criticizes us, can we receive it in humble non-defensiveness? Or do we immediately get angry in response? Or does our mind turn to the attention of God? You know what? If, if I am eternally loved by the Father through the finished work of his Son on the cross, which he's made real to me by his Spirit, then I can probably take criticism. But if I actually don't really live very often in God's eternal love for me, then when someone criticizes me, my identity gets shaken and I get angry and respond in defensive ways. Or the, the one million things we think every week, I need to buy that and have it shipped to my house in two days. <laughs> the next time I want to buy something, could I just say, maybe I should sleep on this. Maybe I should take a week and a week later see, do I still need that? Should I still buy that? Instead of immediately purchasing whatever comes to mind, we have our minds drawn back to God and, well, I'm I have all my needs satisfied in Christ. Should I buy this? Where does your mind go most naturally and easily? Is it to God? Is what you want God? So what I want to say this morning is, you, is what Willard is saying. You actually train your mind and your heart and your soul to want God. And I, I think that's what Paul's getting at in 1 Corinthians Nine, I just want to read this passage for us again. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. 
So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now some Christians have taken this passage in very strange directions about harming their bodies in their discipleship. That's not what Paul is saying. What he's saying is, I want to, he wants to compare discipleship to Jesus with an athletic contest. And he says, how do athletes run? Well, they have an intentional training program so that they can win the prize. And he's saying, likewise, in my discipleship to Jesus, I have an intentional training program so that I can get to the prize that I want to get to. And so, our discipleship is an intentional process where we're training for a particular future. And that's really the heart behind this series. And so, uh, you can go to the the next slide. I've kind of laid out what my vision of how we change spiritually is. The intentional training program includes community. We talked about that the last three weeks. It includes teaching. Uh, we're going to talk about that next week. And then thirdly, it's, it's about the practices. That's what this morning is about. And all of that is empowered. Specifically, those are the things the Holy Spirit does in us. We'll talk about that in two weeks. But my only point is, is, is that is the intentional training process. And a part of that is having practices or spiritual disciplines that we need to practice in order to train our hearts back to loving God above all else. Paul is training his body in discipleship, and we need to train our own bodies and minds towards loving God more than anything else. So that raises lots of questions. Well, let's move into point two. I just want to say we can practice toward loving the right things. Now, I've used an illustration throughout this series to try to make this point, because I'm a golfer, that's been the most natural illustration for me. But I've, I've, after one sermon I finished, and Dave Segrist comes up to me with a quote from my sermon that seemed a little like I was bragging about my golf game. And the, the quote was, he shows me this. This is the notes he took from my sermon, because he's a very spiritual person. <laughs> I want my relationship with Jesus to be like my golf swing. Automatic. It's not quite what I meant, but that must have been what I said. And Dave rightfully made fun of me for it. So let's, let's get that off because uh, I don't want you thinking about that. The point I was trying to make is to have a good golf swing, there's lots of little things you have to do. You have to grip the club in a certain way. You have to turn your hips and your shoulders in a certain way. You, you, wanna, you don't want to grip the club too tight. You don't want to grip the club too loose. And so there's, there's all kinds of little things you can do, hundreds of them in, in golf. You do all these little things, and then it adds up to a golf swing. That, that's good. And when you, you could do all of those little things, you, you can do a swing. And so practicing for golf is practicing those little hundred things you can do by your own effort to add up to a swing that naturally flows that you couldn't do just by trying to have a good golf swing on your own. And so I've practiced those little things for a lot of years, and it's added up to a pretty natural golf swing, which is not automatic, as anyone who will ever play with me will find out. And I want to say that the spiritual disciplines work the same way. And maybe you're sitting there thinking, ah, Tim, you're comparing sports to discipleship to Jesus. You shouldn't do that. Well, that's exactly what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 9. He's comparing sports training to discipleship to Jesus. So if you disagree, talk to the Apostle Paul about that And the way that works, ultimately, I, I think John Mark Comer has a great summary of what, what's happening here. He says this, A discipline is any activity I can do by direct effort 
that will eventually enable me to do that which I currently cannot do by direct effort. And so what's really important for you to hear is discipleship is not, you should try really hard to love God more and make, you know, bring his mind to your attention more often. Try harder at that. It doesn't work. You have to do things that you can do now so that eventually, just naturally and easily, your mind is always coming back to the presence of God. I think too much of discipleship in churches often is, is sort of like if you were to blow up a beach ball and try to hold it underwater, like you can do that for long, a long period of time. Eventually, it's going to pop back up, right? And I think a lot of discipleship sometimes is like, oh, please don't sin, please don't sin, please don't sin. Oh, I sinned. Okay, please don't sin, please don't sin, please. Oh, I sin. And, and it's just this, this, this pattern, this recurring nightmare, and it's, it's trying to hold a beach ball underwater. And my, what I'm trying to do with this sermon is, what if you just got rid of the beach ball and just went swimming? And the practices do that. They train your heart to love God. So let me give you two illustrations. So there's, there's lots of practices. I'm not going to list them all today, but I'm going to name two that are really central to the Scripture's storyline. The first is the Sabbath. The Sabbath. The only of the Ten Commandments Christians today say we don't have to listen to anymore. We just sit in that for a minute. God's like, okay, I got Ten Commandments. Some, listen, some of them are going to be kind of hard. Um, but there's one where for 24 hours in a week, all I want you to do is to cease, to rest, to play, to enjoy my creation, to feast, to just ask yourself what fills your soul with my presence and goodness and spend 24 hours pursuing those things. And American Christians are like, but I would rather check my email. There's like two people who, who got that, right? Because the rest of you feel guilty right now. Or, like, I'm not going to take a day off because I want to keep working in something that's going to make me miserable on Saturday or whatever your Sabbath is. Just, just sit in that. God's like, I want to delight in you, and you to delight in my creation for a day a week. And we're like, I've got to keep working. And I, listen, I'm not saying that to shame anyone, because I, I can speak from the inside on this. And when I ask the question, why in my life did I not practice the Sabbath? Why were those seasons true? And I'll, honestly, I'm in a season right now where Sabbath practice has been very difficult for me. And the, the reason why Sabbath practice is difficult is I want to perform really well and be a good pastor. And I want, I want people to see my work and, and say he's doing a good job, which ultimately makes you driven by other people's expectations. I'm not going to let you down. I'm never going to let someone else down. I'm always going to be available. But here's the reality, and I think this is true. Whatever your job is, there are too many things in, in this congregation that I could give my attention to as a pastor than I have time to give to them. And that will never not be true. Because all of you, right, like you deserve constant uh, attention from, from the church, from the Father, which is ultimately where we're trying to get to. I, I, wanna, I want you to have develop a, a relationship with the Father, not just with other people. But there's so much we could do as pastors to serve people well here. It's, it's more than the time we have to give. And I have no doubt your job is the same. Or whatever vocational season of life you're in, in retirement, the list can always get very long very quickly. And so what a Sabbath does is it says, okay, God, you didn't even have to work seven days to create the world. And I, listen, 
I think the reason why God steps back for a day is because he's saying, you're not going to want to do this. And I just want you to see, I can do this. And if I can do this, you can do this. 24 hours to cease, to embrace rest, to just watch my kids play baseball and leave my phone back at my house, to put sprinkles on my oatmeal and my kids' oatmeal because sprinkles is a wonderful Sabbath practice. (laughs) I turn my phone off. If you text me or or call me on a Saturday, I'm not going to pick up. And the reason for that is it's not because you're not important or, or there isn't important work to do, but it's because the most important thing about me is that God loves me and I'm his. And when I spend 24 hours each week practicing that, I can tell you that changes my experience of the world in profound ways. I don't have to earn anyone else's approval because I'm already eternally loved of the Father. I can shut down my life in ways that need to be shut down so I'm not striving to get, to achieve, to move and just rest. This world's an amazing place. And God has said one day a week, go experience it. <laughs> and Go play and rest. May we take him up on that offer. Because if we do, we're going to find we're becoming people whose hearts are drawn back to the presence of the Father. His love for us. It's the Sabbath. But listen, you can't right now stop trying to get your identity through work or through your kids. or through. You can't do that. It's too, it's too powerful. But what you can do is name 24 hours a week that, that's Sabbath. It's Sabbath for you. And if you do that, what you can do by direct effort, eventually you'll do what you can't do by indirect effort, which is stop trying to find your identity in anything else but God's love for you. So Sabbath, that's practice one. Practice two is fasting. Right, Sabbath is the practice we want but don't do. Fasting is the practice we don't want to do and we don't do. <laughs> and yet it's, it's important. Uh, there is a, I asked this in Sacred Ground, uh, and I think one person knew the answer, but then they were afraid to say it. So maybe I should, shouldn't ask, but I'm going to anyway. There's, there's one false god Jesus names in all of his earthly ministry. A god he names. Anyone know what that is? What was it? I think you're right. It not, well, kind of. Uh, I, th- I thought someone said mammon. It's mammon. It's money. Jesus could have named a lot of gods, because there were a lot of gods in his day. He only names one. It's money. That we buy and own so much stuff today. And you need to know that's all intentional. Like there was an intentional group of people that said, we're going to make Americans buy way more than they ever need. As one Wall Street banker put it, We must shift America from a needs to a desires culture. People must be trained to desire, to want new things, even before the old ones have been entirely consumed. We must shape a new mentality. Man's desires must overshadow his needs. Now, I have a slight quibble with that. I actually don't think you have to do that. Our desires do always overshadow our needs. But they just played into that. And so today, our home, the homes that we live in today, are twice as large as they were in the 1950s. But our families are half the size. So way fewer people, way more space. But even with all the, other, all the space we have now, we still watch the explosion of the storage industry, in industry where uh, now we need to buy and rent additional space to place all of the things that we own. And I, listen, I want to be very clear. I'm not saying any of this to shame you if that's true of you. Okay, I'm not. I, I come with my own deep sin in this area, but it's worth, it's worth meditating 
Um, how do we change from that? Why do we need so much? Or maybe the better question is, why do we buy so much? Why is it that we have loaded our lives so much down with physical, material things? And so, listen, you and I, we can't change that tomorrow. There's a lot that's happened in our soul that's gotten us to this place. So by direct effort, we're not going to suddenly become as radically generous as people expected of people who were, he encountered who were very wealthy. And I would say if you live in Porter County, you are, or you are very wealthy. Might be some exceptions in this room, and I would honor those. But for the most part, most of us in this, this room are wildly, radically wealthy compared to the rest of human history. And yet we've used a lot of that wealth just to buy material things and not to give most of it away to God and his kingdom movements. So how do we change that? Not through shame. That's why I'm not trying to shame you right now. I'm trying to say, feel bad about yourself. No. We change by doing something we can do, which is, is fast. We name one meal a week or one day a week where we say, I'm not going to eat. Instead, I'm going to devote my attention in that meal space to the Father, to prayer. And here's the thing. Food, you actually need food to survive, Right? So it's, I, if I don't eat, I die. Right? That's what happens. And so what I'm doing in that moment is I'm saying, hey, something I actually need to live as a human being. God, I'm, gonna, I'm stepping away from that because I, what I know is actually true is I need you more than that. Right? Jesus, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And I, I practice that. And here's what I'll tell you. When I've had good seasons of fasting in my life, Amazon has not been interesting to me. The kingdom of God, giving my money to the materially poor, to what God's doing around the world, where my, my generosity far exceeds what I think is even possible. Fasting is connected to that. But I can't change that overnight. I have to do something I can do, which is say goodbye to a meal or a day of meals once a week, to embrace prayer instead. And, and over time, that practice leads us into being free of the attachments of this world fast. So that's how it, how it works, right? In golf, you, you learn how to grip the club, how to turn your hips. In discipleship to Jesus, you learn how to fast and Sabbath so that your mind naturally and easily is always coming back to the Father. But this is the tension point, because what a lot of you might be hearing is, Tim, I'm so busy already. I have so many things. Now you're telling me do a hundred more things on top of the hundred things I'm already doing. And, and here's, this is both the Good news and the bad news. Dallas Willard writes, Our mistake is to think that following Jesus consists in loving our enemies, going the second mile, turning the other cheek, suffering patiently and hopefully, while living the rest of our lives just as everyone else does, or everyone around us does. If you have the lifestyle of a non-Christian, no Sabbath, no fasting, very little prayer, scheduled beyond margins, you will naturally, easily, routinely do what American would do if he or she were you. You need the lifestyle of Jesus to have the life of Jesus. And what was Jesus' lifestyle? It was the practices. He practiced the Sabbath. He got away to be with the Father in prayer. He, he fasted regularly. And there's a number of practices over the next uh, few years together. We're going to walk through those and help you in, in, uh, in very gentle ways. Learn how to practice a Sabbath. Learn how to, to deepen your prayer life. Learn how to enter into the disciplines and practices Jesus 
did so that we become people who naturally, easily, and routinely do what Jesus would do if he were us. The discipleship is not about trying harder and giving more effort or else we'll shame you. That doesn't work. But what's, what's tough is it means reworking your entire lifestyle, the habits, the daily rhythms that make up your life so that they are modeled after Jesus and not after an American who buys and, and, and consumes and lives in a way that's very different than Jesus. So that's point two. But where I want to end this morning, is, and this is the most important thing I'll say this morning, is that the practices are not the point. Even Paul, he, he starts by asking questions. Do, all, uh, do you not know in a race, all runners run, but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain the prize. So what's the prize? The best answer to me is in, in Philippians 3. I'm going to condense this a little bit down. Paul writes, What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. It's a lot more. Go read Philippians 3 later. But Paul says, when I survey the world, it's all garbage in comparison to knowing Jesus. And so the prize for for Paul, I think, is knowing Christ. And that's the point of the disciplines, the practices, is not to earn your salvation. You can't earn your salvation. But you've been saved by Jesus, and don't you want to know him more? And so you fill your life with rhythms, practices, habits that enable you to know him more. So one of my, one of my favorite bands, uh, don't endorse all their work, but I, I appreciate most of their music, Florence and the Machine, and they have a song called Hunger, uh, where Florence, their lead singer, she sings uh, about her longing desire to, uh, or how she's fulfilled her desires through drugs, through physical beauty, through pursuing the praise of others. And the end, she just goes through this list. Here's how I've tried to find life. In the chorus, she sings out, we never found the answer. But we knew one thing, we all have a hunger. And what a sad conclusion. I'm hungry and there's no answer. And so, what do you love? What do you want? Because if it's anything but knowing Christ, you're going to sing with Florence. I have a hunger, but there's no answer. Because your career won't give it to you, your kids won't give it to you, consuming won't give it to you, having your own freedom to do what you want and other people getting in your way, that won't, that won't do it for you. There's only one life where your soul gets filled, and it's when you know Christ and the power of his resurrection. But even you just take a step back and you think, man, how, how foolish we can be to pursue things that we know consume us, right? You pursue a life of wealth and materialism. You know, we know it doesn't work out. Pursue a life of chasing your career. We know it doesn't work out. There's probably going to be a movie this Christmas that says, stop pursuing your career, spend more time with your family, and none of us are going to listen to it. So there'll be another movie next Christmas with the same message, probably about money. Right? We know this doesn't work, but we keep doing it. And the, the irony for all of us, me included, is that this is Jesus' invitation to us in light of that. Right? It's the, the, the passage for this whole series. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Right? My lifestyle, my practices, my rhythms. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Learn from me how to spend Saturday, not the world. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Can you just hear his non-anxious way of living in that invitation? 
And his kindness towards us who are out here starving for hunger saying there's no answer. And Jesus is like, I'm right here. Come to me instead. And so the point of the practices will never be to earn your salvation. It's to train your heart to love Jesus more than anything else. The reason I pray, the reason I fast, the reason I try to carve out a Sabbath is I want to know Jesus. And I want my mind to always be coming back to him because who Jesus is is Matthew 11. It's, it's easy. It's burdenless. It is, uh, it is an easy yoke, a light burden. It is rest for my soul. What the world tries to get me to fill my life with does not produce that result. And Florence sings it better than anyone. There is an answer to our hunger, and it is knowing Christ. And so in the coming years, we're going to go deeper into those things. But this morning, we're going to end with another practice. And I know there's why communion every week, and that's a, that's a fair question, but one reason is I believe communion is a practice you can do by direct effort that will produce in you something that you can't by direct effort. Now think about what we're doing every time we gather at the table. We're practicing confession and repentance. Essential confe- the essential confession of communion is I killed Jesus. And you can't walk out of this room, well, we try sometimes, let's be honest. You can't walk out of this room prideful and full of yourself if you come to the table and confess. His body had to be broken for me. His blood had to be shed for me. You practice that for a lifetime and it will make you a humble person. You can't become humble through direct effort, but you can by spending time at his table every week. What's the second thing we practice? Well, we practice hospitality together. One of the reasons why we we gather five to seven people is you don't get to pick who comes to the table with you. And you might find someone that's like, oh, should that guy be there? It's like, don't act like you don't think that, all right? (laughs) But you're you're being trained in that moment. Jesus loves that person, so must I. You get trained in drawing your minds back to God. The most important thing about you, the most important, it's not your career, it's not how your kids turn out, It's not how your bank account balance is doing right now. The most important thing about you is that the Father wants you at his table. And he's done everything he can to get you there. He gave you his son who died on a cross for you. He sent out his spirit loose into the world to draw you back to his table. That will always be the most important thing about you. And it's why it's the most important part of all of our services. Everything I've said, I hope it's helpful in some way. But what you need to experience is the Father wants you at his table. So that's how we must end, because nothing is better than that. Now, my heart will always wander off in other directions. That's why I fast, why I pray, why I Sabbath. And so I get alone with God, not to earn his favor, because I already have it through Jesus Christ. I need to soak in it. I don't try to get God to love me through my practices of the disciplines. It's to more firmly believe what is already true, that God loves me and has given me his son, Jesus Christ. And what I need to do and what you need to do is we need to just spend time looking and dwelling and soaking in the love the Father has given to us. Oh, that we should be called his children. And so we are. And the practices are about making that more true for you today than it was yesterday. Let me pray. Father, as we now come to your table, may we practice together three core disciplines of the Christian faith. Confession, we are sinners. Hospitality, we are a community of sinners that we want to show your love towards. And three, your hospitality towards us, grace. 
God, may we not just believe it in our minds, but experience it in our hearts as we come to your table, I pray. All this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, we're going to practice communion now. Uh, this is a meal for, for Christians, so if you're not yet a Christian, this meal is not yet. For you, I'll be in the hallway after the service. I would love to talk to you about what it means to become a Christian. But if you are a Christian uh, and your faith is in Jesus, we invite you to the table of the Father. Come in groups of five to seven, little kind of like you're gathering around a little table, a little semicircle. We'll pass the bread out one at a time. It's all gluten-free if that's what you need. Uh, dip the, the bread into the, the juice and wait. We'll eat together as sinners. Um, and then as the leaders instruct you, um, take uh, together. So it's a little chaotic. That's okay. Sinners gather around a table. It's always going to be chaotic. Um, but as you're ready, we invite you to his table. Thanks for being with us today. If you'd like more information on our church or a place to connect, you can check us out on the web at findliberty.net.